This is Anthony Pascoe. And this is Lori Ulster, and this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today, we have a very fun interview with the co-EP of Star Trek Prodigy, Aaron Waltke. And we talk about all kinds of fun stuff, including just some of his Star Trek likes and dislikes and thoughts, as well as Prodigy-specific things. So let's do a little bit of news first. Um, We actually did talk to Aaron quite a bit about the strike and his experience with a whole bunch of other Star Trek people who all got together on the picket lines. But first, let's just talk about sort of the strike in general and where it is. Yeah, we're at week three, I guess. Apparently, there's just no movement going on. So it's going to go on for a while. Yeah, I talked to a friend who's in the guild this week just chatting, and she's said just from the chatter she's hearing and what she's being told, she's guessing like we're talking July, maybe August, things getting back up and running by then. And it could get worse because the Screen Actors Guild, the board has voted unanimously to give the union the authority to call for a strike, but but the, the members actually have to approve this but even if they vote yes that doesn't mean they're going to go on strike it just gives the union the authority to call a strike if negotiations which haven't even started yet break down by the end of june so we're about five weeks away from you know kind of the armageddon scenario i mean it could be the actors joining the writers and certainly many of them have been out on the picket lines just supporting the writers Anyway, which is why everybody was voting yes and to give the authorization. So that's where the strike is. Uh, Last Friday, the WGA East and West called for a Star Trek themed picket line day. And we put an article with, you know, pictures from that day in on both sides. The biggest one obviously was going to be at Paramount, where ironically, no Star Trek is actually shot anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, symbolically, you know, your paramount in Hollywood is a big deal. Yep. And, uh, like there were people from, cause David Gerald was there. So, so every single Star Trek show was represented from original series and he was animated series too. So that counts all the way through to the current shows and every single show had somebody there. And actors, too. Bakula was there and, you know, uh, Jerry Ryan was there. And, you know, I mean, just a ton of actors. And Denise Crosby was there. Mary Chifa was there. It was Ethan Peck was there. It was crazy. John Billingsley. In New York, Tawny Newsom was there. Yep. Sally Rose Gooding. I think Jess Bush showed up there. And Melissa Navia was there. Um, Anthony Rapp, you know, he lives in New York, is doing a show in New York. He was there with his baby. So that's where that is. We'll talk more with Aaron about that. But if you want to see the fun pictures, check it out. But there was a video from our friend Larry Nemechek. Yeah. Which kind of had some, I mean, not news, but confirming things that we've known, but, you know, are now more set. Uh, first of all, it's worth watching in itself just to see, because he does talk to a whole bunch of the different people who are there who are get, gathering to take a big photo together as well. But Strange New Worlds, no surprise, uh, season three has ceased production, obviously. Well, they never um, even started production. Yeah, they're not moving forward at all right now. So Henry Alonzo Myers is the co-showrunner. He was in the line and he said something like... um not until after the strike. Right. Which we knew. Yeah. 
you know, we hadn't heard it from his mouth yet, but we knew it. And the Starfleet Academy show too, obviously they're not doing anything else there. One of the writer's assistants was there in a cool Star Trek t-shirt. And he basically, he said something about how they had a very long runway, (laughs) which I assume means they had started quite some time ago, but they're not doing anything now at all. Well, and they also, I mean, they have a long runway between now and when they were planning on starting production, which is early next year. But he right. said something effective, you know, now they're, they, they're assuming they're going to, the writer's room will live on into next year. Right. Which could delay production on season one. So Paramount Plus may not have as much live action Star Trek as early as they might want. If they don't have shows, they can't put them on the air. That's the bottom line. (laughs) Yeah. And the last thing they've got in the can is Discovery Season 5. So when they air that in early 2024, they will have the two animated shows. And that's maybe all we get next year. In fact, I'm betting now that's all we get next year. We'll see. That would be sad. We'll need to book a lot of interviews. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I only think about how this affects the two of us. So <laughs> that's still I mean, that would still add up to 30 episodes of Star Trek. So it's not, you know. All right. Speaking of Strange New Worlds, which we were, we finally got that trailer that we've been waiting for and a poster and a cool shot of Mariner and Boimler. So let's start with that trailer, which I have to say, I often think, oh, the trailers don't show us great and they make it look like action, action, action. I mean, in everything across the board, this trailer I thought was great. And you know, I'm nervous about this show. Yeah. I mean, the the best part about it, I think, is that it shows you lots of just alien locations. Yes. You know, which is the whole point of the show. It's so and space locations and all that kind of stuff. You get a sense that they're going to, you know, do some strange new worlds. That's the thing for me is I felt the adventure, the sense of adventure was so was to me the strongest thing in this trailer that got me excited. We're going to go to places we haven't seen. We're going to see the ship doing crazy stuff and we're going to meet some aliens. We're going to go some to some familiar places. We saw more of Rigel 7, which is kind of the ultimate familiar place in Star Trek because it's the first place. Right. Cage. And there's a brief shot of uh, a Gorn in a spacesuit, I think. I think I blocked that. (laughs) (laughs) I just refuse to accept it. There'll be a whole Gorn episode and I'll be like, nope, not the Gorn. I'm not watching this. (laughs) Captain Girlfriend is back. Captain Battelle. I know. I still don't don't think she's quite girlfriend. I just think she's friend with benefits. But we'll see. Yeah, we saw some of those benefits. Kissing. (laughs) Yes, we There's did. There's a lot of kissing well, in this trailer. There was a lot of kissing. I have to say, I'm less interested in the kissing. I like a good romance, but all that kissing just in the trailer makes me think, oi, how much kissing is in the actual thing? And why is everybody kissing? But So it's Pike and Battelle, and then Spock and Chapel is kind of the big kissing. And Leon and Kirk. There's a lot of kissing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so- I mean, you know, it's a couple of minutes trailer, and there's already a lot of kissing. And why are Spock and Chapel kissing? But hopefully there's some crazy sci-fi reason that they're kissing. <laughs> yeah, Things I mean, happen. you know, they're infected by aliens or, sure. you know, th- there's, there's going to be something. I very much liked it. Uh, we got a, a bit of a sense of the Carol Kane character. Yes, I'm so excited for that. 
I guess, you know, frazzy, wacky, wacky. She's going to be a funny character, I think, is where we're going with that. Yeah, well, she's a very, I mean, she's a terrific actress, but she's definitely extra brilliant when it comes to comedy. Plus, I have to say, I just love that they have a 70-year-old actress as the chief engineer. Yeah. Here's something else I thought about. I mean, again, it's just a trailer, so it's hard to tell. But I feel like there was very little Mabenga in there. He didn't get much to do. And I, and I felt that way. In, for, you know, he had a few th- stories that were about him. But normally in Star Trek, our doctor so integrated into everything that's happening. And I hope that they do include him in more scenes with more people. I think the teaser that they released, I guess, was that the end of March had a lot of a Babanga in it, actually, when you look back at it. And um, Babanga in different situations with different people. So I think that's just how they cut this thing. I don't okay, think- I hope so. I have to take a look. I don't really remember. You know, it's been a while. But I, th- I thought that even the opening scene with Ortega's flying and then saying, oh, I did this all the time. And that whole scene I thought was a great setup too. It's just really well done and and surprisingly so. Fan reaction so far has been very positive because this is very different than Picard. So people are starting to make the transition now to a different <laughs> kind of Star Trek. I think people are also super excited about Mariner and Boimler from Lower Decks and they look great. I noticed on the bridge, her sleeves are rolled up but I don't think they are in the transporter room. Boimler's hair, a lot of people thought that his hair wasn't purple. I think if you're watching it on your phone, you might not notice it. You need to watch it on a a good screen, but the the purple hair is there. It's just, it's not vibrant, but it's, it's purple. It's It's there's definitely, they look great. Just the little bits we've seen of what they've said looks good. Like I, that is going to be so much fun. Yeah, and the, you could get a sense, which we've heard of, of this whole issue with Boimler and Spock about how Boimler just is, kind of loses it around Spock. And you get a sense of that in the trailer at the end. And Tawny posted something on Twitter um, about like some alternate line that he did that was funny and how funny it was doing that scene. There's something on the poster, too. If you look at the poster, it's got all these colors in it and we see the cast. But then for some reason, there's like almost a black and white sort of strip of the poster and that's where chapel is yes some people have said maybe there's a message there you know but we know chapel lives and we also i just think that it's a multicolored poster and one of those colors was gray and so she's in the gray part but i'm not sure there's a message there yeah i mean it does seem like an odd choice gray in the middle of all those colors i don't know i feel like that's there maybe for a reason Kirk is not in the poster. Pella is not in the poster. Because they're not main cast. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So there's some other Strange New Worlds news coming from SFX Magazine. There was an interview with Akiva Goldsman. Some things he confirmed that we all we knew the Gorn were coming back. We're going to see Captain Angel again, which I'm pretty sure we knew. The one thing he said about the crossover that I thought was interesting was that he said it would have full-on animated pieces as well. I knew that it was them coming into live action, and I didn't know that they were going to be fully animated. Well, didn't Frakes say that when he was here? I think he said, I think it's bookended animated. So I think it's, you know, there's going to be like a minute at the end and a minute at the beginning. I don't think it's going to. Yeah, what he's, what Frakes, Frakes described sounded to me like a lot less than what Akiva said. 
I'm betting it's just the bookends. It is. It's interesting how he says it is that they kind of when they were putting this together, they realized they needed to bring in the people from lower decks to really help them craft it and get the tone right. Mike McMahon being very important there. Which is good. I was happy to hear that. I mean, that's the episode I'm the most excited about in this season. That's the one thing I'm most excited about, about the whole season. Fun. And he also, Akiva said that he's very open to all kinds of other crossovers. I think once the floodgates are opened, he's going to start thinking about how they can do that with other shows. Yeah, I think that would be fun. Or maybe, you know, going the other way. There's always a way to do it. He talked about how Kirk is a Lieutenant Kirk and is different. So I'm still going to be open-minded on the Kirk thing until we actually see it. Well, that makes one of us. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not fully closed-minded, but I'm I'm already very much leaning on why are they doing that. So I'm glad you'll be open-minded. And I, as I always say, I hope to be pleasantly surprised. So what did you think of what he had to say about canon and all that kind of stuff? I mean, it is. so he said, we'll body check canon when we need to, and we have. Yes, he, they most certainly have. And he talked about moving people around in terms of timelines and putting people together who weren't necessarily together. And the thing that got me was when he said, trying to stay within canon is an, is an awfully fun exercise and leads to solutions that you might not come up with if you didn't have those boundaries. Frankly, I don't think they have those boundaries. I think they've just gotten rid of the boundaries and they're doing what they want. You know, it's it all comes down to the execution, you know, because I'm not a canonista, but I don't want you to disrespect it either. And so, yeah, I'm a little nervous about season two. You know, he talked also about season two is going to be season one, but more, you know, and so different genres. And he he kind of he said, basically, we're trying to bend. He used the phrase bend Star Trek before we break it. And so they're kind of trying to push the limits and, you know, risk is our business. So I don't want to prejudge. So this will all come down to execution. You know, we may look back and say, yeah, they took a risk and that was cool. Or we may look back and say they're being a bit cavalier with the franchise. I'm fine with playing with different genres. Like I, I think Star Trek's always done that. And it's one of the fun aspects of it so that doesn't it to me it's and i don't even i don't get super hung up on lots of details i don't you know if they get a ship name somewhere in there that's i don't care about that stuff but what i do care about is things that are sort of essential to who our characters are as we've known them and messing with that kind of stuff and as you said if it's very well executed i can forgive a lot because if i'm enjoying myself i'm enjoying myself it's usually when I'm not enjoying it that those things bother me more. We're, you know, just a few weeks away, so I remain excited. Let's move on. Oh, just minor Strange New Worlds news. Um, well, not minor. If you're a comic book fan, they've announced a new comic book miniseries coming out the week after the series finale. This is IDW. It's going to be called The Scorpius Run. So when Strange New Worlds wraps up, you'll have... This is a little bonus to keep you going. We don't know if it's set after season two, but that's cool. So more IDW comics. I've been hyping them for a while. They just got nominated for their first Eisner Awards for Star Trek. So they're doing great work. And you should be checking out the Star Trek comics because there's a whole bunch of them and 
people should be buying them so that they keep on doing it. Yeah. Uh, we also have a little bit of Star Trek Picard news, which is that for the third time, the show has cracked the Nielsen top 10. So it was the penultimate episode and the series finale, right? Yeah, there's a bit of delay with Nielsen streaming rankings, um, so they take weeks. But yeah, the, the last two, and so episode nine, that week they came in ninth, and or no, tenth. And, and then for the finale, they came in ninth with kind of a, a big jump. You know, it's a big deal. You know, Paramount Plus, they just started tracking this year. You know, so the, the season finale of the, the Harrison Ford show was ranked like fifth or fourth or something. So that did even better. But, you know, you had the new show with, um, which I liked, Rabbit Hole with Kiefer Sutherland. That never showed up. You got the, the Pink Ladies show, all, all sorts of other shows, good shows on paramount plus that aren't showing up on this chart so it makes sense that star trek and yellowstone shows are going to show up in the chart because that's those are the two biggest franchises they've got right and in any promotional material that paramount plus is sending out about anything those shows are always mentioned you see their logos you see their images everything it's a big deal yeah the big question is is strange new worlds going to be showing up and is it going to be outperforming Picard or not making it to the top 10? Um, the legacy petition is still going strong and is now up to 50 over 57,000 people have signed that. Yeah. Which, you know, it, it's going to at least double, I predict the strange new worlds petition before that show even had a name, but People shouldn't think, oh, you know, Strange New World's got a petition that, you know, and then they got a show. So therefore, this is going to get a show. Yeah. Petitions know? don't get shows made. So even if the <laughs> WJ strike was not happening, it doesn't hurt. Fans should be out there supporting the show, getting the message out, using the hashtag. But those Nielsen rankings are probably more important than right. a million hashtags. <laughs> All right. There's something else cool on the site right now. Your interview with Sirach Lofton and Denise Crosby talking about podcasting. They're rewatcher. They're not really rewatching, are they? Next Generation. Well, they, so what they're doing is they were great to talk to, by the way, and gave me so much more time than they'd even promised me. They were amazing. So they're watching Star Trek The Next Generation Season 1, making their way through each episode. But... It's all Denise's episodes. And then once she's gone, I don't think she said she's not going to keep going through the whole series with Sorok, but she will come back whenever she's in an episode. So and the the fun thing about these two is he's never watched The Next Generation. Like he he said he knows who the characters are, but that's pretty much it. And she hasn't watched since her episodes aired the first time, and then she didn't keep watching. So it's very funny to talk to two people who are in Star Trek, and I'm telling them, like, hang in there, it's going to get better. <laughs> like, yeah. they don't know how great TNG is going to be, because they're in those first, that first season where they really are still kind of finding their their tone and their voice and each person is finding the characters. But I remember when I talked to Denise last year, she kind of implied that if Michael Piller, who everyone kind of considers saved the show later on was the showrunner, she might not have left. 
Yeah, you know, she brought him up in our interview as well when we were talking about sexism and how it got so much better with Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And she said, that's Michael. She was like, that's what happens. It's who's writing it, Michael Pillar. And when I said I thought it went kind of backwards again on Enterprise, I mean, there was no Michael Pillar there. So very interesting stuff. And then I'd ask them, you know, when they watch new Star Trek, which I know they're watching, at least Picard and stuff like that, you know, did they see roles for themselves or how they could be brought back? Because anybody could. Ciroc, I thought it was funny, brought up season one, that reporter that's interviewing Picard. He's like, that should have been Jake. That would have been cool. Yeah. If Terry Metalis was running that season, it you know, there's almost no doubt it would have been, right? Yeah, and he said he would have brought up Wolf 359. So you know, it's very, and that was a very interesting thought. And then Denise, of course, was like, well, she had tweeted, I think, even because she was grateful, I guess, that she got a little moment in Picard, you know, when Data's holding the, the hologram thing. So, and she was thanking Terry for including her. And he said, you know, we'd never forget Tasha. And then he says, Sila next. (laughs) And she had this whole theory that like Tasha escaped and that eventually she and Sila could meet up and they'd be the same age. Interesting thought. So there's a possible storyline for Star Trek Legacy, if that ever happens. Yeah, like I said, would it be in the Legacy show? And she said, you know, it could it could be that. It could be a new show or part of a, some other. She didn't think it should be its own show. But she <laughs> <laughs> but she did think it could be part of some Terry Mattel. They all just love Terry so much. And I mean, who can blame them? Exactly. There's a lot more great stuff in your interview. So people should just check out the whole thing. Yeah. So there's this game, Star Trek Resurgence, which I did not have the uh, laptop necessary <laughs> to play this game, which made me sad because you guys have all been raving about how much fun it is. So Star Trek Resurgence came out this week. It's available on PC, Xbox, PlayStation. Um, it's a narrative adventure game. So it's kind of like it really adds up to more than a season. It's it could, You could end up playing this thing for 15 20 hours it's a single story you know diplomatic crisis you play two different characters and there's a mystery with some deep cuts to star trek i think we've already said this before i mentioned it in a previous week so but i'm not going to spoil it in case i haven't mentioned it so we have a slack channel and all the gamers are going yeah Lori would really love this and i'm like oh so it's you know i have simple needs for my laptop so it's just not up to the task you don't really need to be a gamer to enjoy the game. And in fact, if you're a hardcore gamer, because like some gamers are like, well, it's not 60 frames per second. It's doesn't have the graphics that you'll get. You know, It's not that kind of game. It's not a sandbox game. It's not a shooter. It's a story game. You are. It's an interactive story. There's some puzzles. The puzzles are frustrating at times. And it, it's all in my review. But Brian and I agree. And Joe that it's a really, really good Star Trek story. Some great performances. The guy who plays Spock is really good. Uh, Jonathan Frakes is in there playing Riker. Um, but it's mostly these new characters and you'll, you know, each of whom have their own personalities and you help guide those personalities through the game. So highly recommended Star Trek Resurgence. And Laurie would like it. Yeah. And Laurie, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh. Let's uh, roll in our interview with Aaron Wookie. 
All right, we are here with Aaron Waltke, who is the co-EP on Star Trek Prodigy, which I love to rave about how much I love. And we're going to talk to him about a whole lot of different things, Star Trek and Writers Guild and Prodigy. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, thanks for uh, having me. Always a pleasure to, to be on the show. You were here for our 100th, but I don't think we wanted to wait till our 200th to have you back. <laughs> yes, I I still dream about that. <laughs> the, the honor. <laughs> So you you just had a, a an interesting experience. You were walking the picket line for Star Trek theme day at Paramount Pictures. What was that yes. like? Yes. So you know, obviously, um, Star Trek Prodigy is in the Animation Guild, so it's it is a different guild. But uh, Tag it definitely encourages union solidarity, um, and uh, you know the Star Trek powers that be, you know, wanted to. Sh- show their uh, alliance with the writers guild because you know their struggle is everyone's struggle uh, and trying to keep uh, wages fair and equitable and living a living doing this possible here in hollywood so uh you know the prodigy team uh came out to show their support and uh yeah it was it was really interesting you know obviously nobody wants to be on strike no one wants to go on strike and and i think i don't not speak out of turn that everyone would prefer this strike be ended as quickly as possible but you know i think there is something uh very um encouraging i should say about seeing the the level of solidarity and and union in the in this union um of everyone kind of coming together and and saying this is a cause worth fighting for and you know it was really inspiring uh, uh, seeing people from literally every other Star Trek show there, many of whom I had, you know, already knew, some of whom I had knew known through like Twitter, but never had a chance to see in meet space, as they say. Um, and you know, it was ready from like David Gerald to Ethan Peck to Jason Manzukis to you know uh, Rebecca Romaine, and like er- everybody was there. It felt like, um, and yeah, it was it was. The only other time I felt that kind of like pride and, you know, that's, I guess that, that sort of existential swell of, wow, I'm really a part of something much bigger than myself was I remember uh, the first time they did Star Trek Day and going to like the uh, the red, the blue carpet, I guess they had, and just seeing down the line them interviewing like George Takei and, and then the Stranger Worlds people. And then it's like, wow, there's just 60 years of, of incredible creativity and and thought and philosophy and you know it's it felt like being a part of a star trek convention but there with a very specific purpose other than to sign autographs and answer fan questions um yeah and you know me personally it was uh my my grandfather was a union guy and uh he was part of the tool and die model maker uh, the machinists union actually um he was sort of an, an engineer and an inventor sort of a scotty of his time i guess uh, did stuff for the uh, space shuttle and worked with BF Skinner's people in the psychology world. And he was just a really interesting dude. But anyway, um, yeah, so uh, I, I definitely am, come from a union family. So I was happy to show my support. And uh, yeah, I, I do remember there, or, or, or probably the most memorable thing I should say that happened there was, um, you know, 
I went to write my sign, and of course, like there's there's one quote that's the best for a Star Trek picket, which is of course Chief O'Brien saying he was more than a hero, he was a union man. So I just wrote that down on a sign and then turned around and then there was Robert Hewitt Wolf who had co-written that episode with Ira Bear, who was also there. Um and and he was holding a sign, a better sign than mine with the same quote. And so we had kind of a laugh about it. And, you know, we were Twitter friends, but that was the first time that we had met in person. So it's a surreal moment for sure. That's amazing. I, mean, I also come from Union Stock, by the way, big organizers sure. and my great grandparents. But uh, so who like who else was there that really so that you hadn't encountered yet? Uh, you know, I had not met. um Jerry O'Connell or Rebecca Romaine, and curiously, Jason Manzukis, even though we've been working with him as the voice of Jankum Pog for several years now, because of the pandemic, we always had we had him recording remotely. So we had talked over Zoom and stuff with the team, but never had met in person. <laughs> and, you know, our our cast on Prodigy is international. So a lot of our a lot of our crew or a lot of our cast even is in like Europe and England and such. So uh, it's always kind of special to be able to, you know, hang out with him in person. Yeah, so it was it was really amazing, actually. And Bill Bill Wolkoff is is a friend of mine. We actually go way back to working at DreamWorks together. Uh, he used to run. Uh, he was a co creator of a show called Kipo in the Age of Wonder Beasts. While I was there working on uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, Netflix show uh, Troll Hunters, <laughs> and so it was great kind of catching up with him a little bit and. Uh, Carlos Cisco, who helped organize it, uh, is also great. I don't know if you've talked with him at all. He was a discovery writer um, and also very active in the RPG community. And I believe he actually even wrote the official discovery RPG companion for Star Trek Adventures. And <laughs> he's great. Wow. Uh, very nerdy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'm geeking out about it, just talking about it. Yeah. That's a actually, um, th- th- they are now releasing... This is going down a rabbit hole. They're they're just about to release the lower decks companion. Uh, have you heard anything about a prodigy companion to that game? And would you be the one to write it? <laughs> I would love to. You know, I that's very far above my pay grade as far as like if and how and when that stuff happens. But you know, maybe if there's enough fan interest, uh, it certainly could happen. You know, there are people who are members of TAG and WGA. Let me ask you, I mean, this is a super technical thing, but but even though the WGA is on strike, if you're on a tag show and you're a member of the WGA, you're still allowed to work on the ta- under the tag contract for the animated shows. Well, it, not only uh, allowed to, but encouraged because, you know, the nature of, of uh, you know, of union negotiation, like uh, TAG is part of IATSE, which negotiated with the AMPTP last year. And so once you agree to a contract with the AMPTP, you you should honor it. Otherwise, you know, striking and <laughs> negotiations don't mean anything. <laughs> so that's basically the, the for people who are in TAG and the WGA, you know, you are encouraged to complete your, your uh, TAG contract, you know, because it is a legal contract with the AMPTP that, that, and I can't speak to all the specific strike rules, but that that's, it's this kind of the same reason why SAG can't go on strike yet because they are still technically under their previous contract. Same with the DGA. Do you think that these unions, those, the two you just mentioned are likely to join? 
I mean, I think SAG is leaning in that direction for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I can't really speak to that one way or the other, but uh, what I I will say that it, this this year it does feel like everyone is very much on the same page. That there is there has been sort of a an a, a an existential shift in how television is being made, and I think everybody just seems to agree. That uh, you know, we need to kind of create a new set of rules that will make this a sustainable practice in the industry. I mean, if if SAG, either SAG or DGA joined, that's that just shuts down everything. Period. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, if if the SAG goes on strike, they can't perform. And if DGA goes on strike, they can't direct. And there's not much else you can really do at that point, you know, <laughs> other than ed- edit existing footage into oblivion, I guess. This is a I, I, I don't know if you can get into this, but, you know, for, for Prodigy season two, do you have the voice work already done in the can, at least for the first 10 episodes? Uh, yeah, so Prodigy, you know, we finished writing the, um, the season two last year, and so we've been producing and re- and uh, uh, producing and recording those episodes, um, and and so we're currently fairly well along with that. You know, it well into animation. You know, we have the first several episodes completely locked and done, and and. I think it's we're at the point where we have most everything recorded, um, you know, uh, which is which was always, you know, that's just how schedules work. So uh, as far as I know, we, you know, will continue unimpeded there. Occasionally there are pickups that you need here or there or what have you. Um, and those obviously would have to wait if the SAG goes on strike. You know, we were talking about this last week because on Lower Decks, there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of improv going on with those actors because of the nature of the show and the actors that they hired. With Prodigy, it's obviously a different story, but is there anyone in there who who does improv and changes things and does some improv in the booth that affects the show? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's always bits of improv and, and sometimes, you know, for instance, Jason Manzukis kind of added his own little flair to how Jankum Pog performs, <laughs> you know, there's a number of times where, you know, he'll start a take by going, blah, 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 <laughs> like a sort of like guttural <laughs> eruption. <laughs> that is quite amazing. Uh, other actors like Kate is really an, uh, an amazing performer and, and, you know, she can, she can find a lot of different nuances if you give her the room to play of how something is performed and done. Uh, Brett Gray actually is also very versatile and, you know, he can, like, if you tell him to make it funnier, he'll make it 10 times funnier with how he delivers it and adds pauses and goes, eh, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> or if you want him to play it serious, he can pull that, like, he's a very versatile voice actor. And I could be wrong, but I think this might be his first voice acting job, which is incredible to me because he's so good at it. You know, he was just, he was a live action actor when we, when we hired him primarily at least, but yes, improvisation, you definitely get a little bit of that here or there. And as season two comes out, I definitely will try to point that out of where there is little bits of uh, improv here or there that have come out. And I know you can't tell us any big secrets about season two obviously yes but but, uh yeah we accept that but can you like what what would you say is the biggest difference between season one and season two 
Well, I mean, I think you can kind of suss that out from just season one, which is obviously it, season one ends with a very distinct sort of turning of a page into a new chapter. You know, the protostar, spoiler alert, by the way, for anybody who hasn't finished season one, like, like <laughs> pause here and go watch season one. Um, so, uh, yeah, so season one ends, obviously, the, the protostar has been destroyed, you know, the 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 prodigy crew have made it back to earth and even though they didn't make it into starfleet academy they've they've been given a sort of provisional sort of training status to become non-coms you know or or you know uh you know warrant officers in training who don't necessarily have rank but can still serve on a ship you know and <laughs> you know the the history of of non-commissioned officer or ranks i should say in in starfleet is very nebulous and strange and kind of wide open i think there's only been like four ever explicitly mentioned uh you know where they actually talk about being non-coms you know o'brien even being though there should be right. there should be tons of them out yes there. yeah and even uh gene ronbury himself kind of famously went back and forth over whether they existed even though there definitely were crewmen in TOS, like he's yes. written books about how no everybody on the Enterprise was actually an officer, <laughs> you know, because the way he the, the way he envisioned it was sort of like this uh, idealized, you know, what would what would the better parts of the military or the Navy look like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years from now? And he's like, oh, they don't even ha- adhere to a hierarchy in the traditional sense. They just salute because it's respectful and it's like a hello. <laughs> and it's just like, what are you, whoa, okay. Um, and <laughs> but then, yeah, the uh, yeah, he he's gone back and forth uh, saying that like in his mind, it, it, they're like astronauts, right? And every astronaut has to be an officer, you know, like they're both. Uh, they've passed all of the critical tests and have are educated gentlemen or gentlewomen or or people you know that that are up in space that are doing this just out of the kindness of their hearts, which a very interesting take in my opinion. Uh, but I think sometimes when you talk to a slowly 21st century folk, it's hard for them to wrap their heads around that. Of uh, really, the hierarchy is just built on respect and not out of punishment or signing contracts or whatever. But yeah, so that's you know that's quite a diversion from your original question. But anyway, they are like yeah, they're in these sort of this interesting space of like they they aren't in Starfleet yet, but they're being given a chance to prove themselves in this sort of like on the job training, almost like an internship or something. Well, it gives you flexibility. The lack of rules and structure around that gives you a lot of leeway. It does, but I think you also like it is a different scenario, right? You had before they literally had almost complete freedom with just essentially the gentle guidance of hologram Janeway, but otherwise they had a ship to fly around <laughs> and make make right. the, the big moves. Um, and you know now they're actually in it. They're in the Federation. They're they're uh, adjacent to Starfleet, and and there are rules aboard starships that maybe they <laughs> need to figure out. How does Murph fit into that. Is Murph in Starfleet now or in this kind of <laughs> semi-Starfleet status? Well, I mean, I, I, there's only so much I can say, but I mean, it. They say at the end of season one that Murph is one of one of the ones that uh, right. They can't like was, the four of you, yes, or whatever the number was. Yeah, exactly. So Murph is included in that. Uh, you know, all I can say to that is, you know, I think when it comes to 
the intellectual capacity of Murph. I I, I don't think I think we're we're tra- blazing new ground. I I guess as far as like what melanoid slime worms are capable of, <laughs> and and I think you know when you look at the grand scope uh, of Star Trek, they have a long history of sort of playing with when creatures are sapient or when creatures are mature, you know, the Ocampa like are fully realized, like effectively adults after one year, you know? (laughs) So like, we don't know the, what the life cycle of a melanoid slime worm is. Uh, and even if they, you know, um, can't communicate verbally you know that doesn't make them any different than a tamarian for instance you know they just it's just a slightly they're just more evolved and more intellectually complex that the universal translators can't understand them <laughs> maybe after a couple of years like if you go visit the home planet and you know five-year-olds sound like peter ustinov you know so yeah, who, uh... who knows i guess <laughs> it's of, like we, like you know don't tr- don't uh, impose your your uh, anthropocentric assumptions onto melanoid slime worms. Let's put it that way. I'm going to get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> don't put your, <laughs> don't put your anthropocentric assumptions onto melanoid slime worms. That's some good Trek movie uh, merch you could sell. Yeah. And, and, well, so it, going back to the family, the, so, so Gwyn flew off on her own that, that, that they all watched her kind of leave on a little ship. Yes. At the end of season one, you see, she she is off uh, to go to Solom, uh, you know, at her request to try to sort of fulfill her father's wishes, but also more just like the greater conundrum that her father was wrestling with, which is sooner or later, someone's going to make contract with Solom. And if if they're not eased into it the right way, it will spell doom for their society, um, you know. And so she, for better or for worse, she is the only one who is equipped with enough knowledge of what's happening, but also her own culture that she might be able to, you know, guide them away from self-destruction. Um, and so that's that's what her mission is. How she'll do that and if she'll succeed it, or how how easy it will be or hard, difficult it will be is stuff you'll have to wait and see. I don't know if you can tell us this or not, but was she alone on that ship or did she have some people with her? I I don't think she was flying that that ship, you know. It start. I think Janeway says at the end of season one, you know, Starfleet has has offered to escort her or to 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 give her passage. So, um, so yeah, I I think that they that Starfleet is going to take her to a certain point, and then that you know, then it's all on her. It, so it does give you this kind of the dual storylines now. Well, I guess we kind of had that with the Dauntless and the Protostar storylines in in the back 10. Yeah. And, you know, I think any good television show, it's tricky to do in in 30 minutes, but it can be done, you know, of the A story and the B story. And then they kind of, they entwine together in interesting and surprising ways and, you know, we're, we're, I think the Hagemans have already said elsewhere, <laughs> we're not just going to ignore Gwen. You know, it's just not, we're not going to write her off the show and then have her occasionally, you know, send a postcard. <laughs> like, you know, uh, the story of Solom is so integral, I think, to these first 40 episodes that I, 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 it would, we'd be remiss to ignore that. And Gwen is such a compelling character and so interwoven into the, 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 the very fabric of prodigy that, you know, of course we're going to 
follow her. And Essencia yeah, is still a character too. I think that's been yeah. Essencia escaped successfully, so she's still out there somewhere. Or what's her real name again? The... Jamila Jamil. No, well, no, her, I mean, her, 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 her code. Uh, her code oh, name her... is the Vindicator. Right, right. They right. all get great names like that, like the Eradicator from Kids in the Hall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've been re-watching season one, and I am amazed at how much you guys pack into each episode without it ever. It doesn't feel like it's being packed in and rushed, but so much happens within the characters and the story in such a short time. It blows my mind. I don't have a question. I just think that's amazing. <laughs> and I, I think I've mentioned this before, just trying to squeeze what is traditionally a you know an hour-long sort of story format into 22 minutes is not easy. <laughs> and especially since we don't have the luxury of kind of putting a, you know, just a joke bandaid on it, you know, the way that for instance, lower decks can kind of move things along just by having somebody lampshade something or whereas we're trying to, in some cases we do do that, but in other cases we are trying to just treat it with just pure sincerity and, you know, to let those moments breathe and to let those moments uh, really sing, you know, sometimes you have to take narrative shortcuts or what have you just to try to like, all right, yeah, we could spend another two more, <laughs> another two um, observation room scenes talking about that, what they're going to do, or we could just mention it and get into it so it's tricky and sometimes i think we're more successful than others but on the whole people seem to be swept up in it and the most common thing i get is like i want more which you know i'll take that any day of the week yeah. <laughs> you know the structure of the show it's serialized but it's still standalone but you ended up having a few two-parters sometimes you would call something a two-parter but sometimes there were episodes that felt like two parters, little arcs, yeah. like when they go visit a planet and then you do, you know, so is that, is the mix still roughly the same of that, that kind of structure? Are you now you getting into more of the mini arcs, that kind of thing? You know, I think, um, I think it really, when it comes to like, what's, how many two parters you have and how many you don't, it, it, it really does. It's not a mathematical equation per se. It re, you have to kind of let the story tell you, it, you know, you don't want something to feel too rushed uh, or it's not going to be impactful and it'll be unsatisfying. So sometimes when we're planning out, you know, things, we might initially envision something as one episode and then it's like, oh, actually, to really tell this story properly, it should be a two-parter and there's an obvious break, you know. And so that's typically how we kind of dictate these things. We, you know, it comes down to, okay, what's happening in this five-episode mini-arc? first of all, like, where do we know they need to get to? And then we might init have initial plans to say they'll do all this in this episode and then this episode. And then we're actually like getting into the nitty gritty. You're like, oh, actually there's too much that needs to happen here. So let's, is there a way we can restructure and make them both feel like satisfying kind of episodes, but obviously so connected that they are, they do kind of inform each other, you know? Um, and I think there's different there are other Star Trek shows that have done that as well. You know, like I think Deep Space Nine 
certainly started in a place that was a, a little bit more episodic. And then, of course, by the end, <laughs> it was like, you know, the, I think the finale, you could argue, has something like, what, an 11-part <laughs> finale of the show? <laughs> we don't go that far, but we certainly, I think, because there are, we have a number of stories that we want to service adequately, um, you know, I think there is a, a, a continuity that is very present in this one. That that's kind of the, I guess, the fun of of a, a streaming show is that you can, you know, once they're all out, you can just watch them <laughs> all in one go if you want. I, I forget how many credits you have as a writer, but I, there's two specific episodes I know are kind of your episodes, mm-hmm. and they're the the nerdiest of each block of ten, and <laughs> and very standalone in a way. So do, is this almost a, a thing for you now? Like, do you do you get the you know, Aaron gets to nerd out standalone every 10 episodes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know if it's planned out that way, but <laughs> oftentimes there have been a few occasions where we'll get an episode that is very, what I like to say is like crunchy, where it's like, um, <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of like moving parts and there's a lot of things that you have to have very intimate knowledge of this, that or the other. And, you know, in order for it to work, you you just need somebody who just kind of has a lot of that internalized. And, you know, it just so happens there. And there are certainly other people uh, in the room, in the prodigy room that have that sort of, you know, at least in, in terms of like the inner workings of Starfleet and Star Trek in general have that knowledge. But they had already committed to other episodes. And, you know, a lot of the episodes that I wound up getting pulled onto were a little bit more meta or they took, you know, because they had so much, so many layers to them, it was almost like a tiramisu cake. (laughs) And I, you know, I happened to be very intrigued and good at, you know, kind of taking those things that could easily be way too much and really kind of shaping them into something. And so that, that uh, it so happens that that works out that way. I do get to write a few more episodes that uh, maybe aren't quite so meta <laughs> this uh, this upcoming season. So, uh, you know, look forward to seeing just, I don't know, playing it straight, Aaron, <laughs> versus just a super nerd Aaron. I like super nerd Aaron, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get a, Trust me, there's still plenty of nerdy stuff in my, in my episodes, but... And was there anything in fan reactions to season one once it all ended that surprised you? Like people latching onto something you didn't expect? I mean, maybe not surprised, but uh, there were a couple. I remember when the first 10 episodes came out, I remember we had this sort of like bet with the Hagemans about whether people would, you know, how how much people would be asking about the Cation child. <laughs> And like the little cats that that was left behind on <laughs> yeah. Tars Lamora, and I'm like, and the room was like, they are gonna immediately want her to just join the crew and fly off and go on adventures, and they were like, eh, we'll see, and yeah, <laughs> we, I the, even the Hagemans, I think, will admit that that uh, the they maybe underestimated the love of the Cation child. The and the other thing that surprised me, I would say, is the embrace of uh, so-called goth Janeway. <laughs> I don't, I don't think anybody <laughs> anticipated that <laughs> just like of the sort of dark when, when Janeway was, was somewhat corrupted by the, the Vaunacott virus. 
or no, sorry, no, by the programming, uh, not the virus right. itself that came later, um, but but was rebooted by Dreadnought to be a little bit more, um, <laughs> you know, uh, helpful. I, I was not. I don't think any of us were anticipating that level of popularity. But you know, who doesn't love a good variant, right? <laughs> I saw you sharing um, a an image of a fan doing cosplay from your. Uh, Enterprisean episode. Yes. You know, in, you know does, does it, you know, what does it feel like for you to see that? And when you're in the room, do you guys ever like talk about cosplay and fan reaction to things you're creating? Yeah. I mean, we certainly talk about cosplay and, and how, oh, this has definitely got to be a cosplay, you know, and, and, or, but we, you know, I think when it comes down to, when you when you're trying to put together a good story you do always want to think forward of like how would the audience react to this are they going to be excited by this is this some is this sort of answering a question they didn't even know they had and i feel like if you can at least get a yes probably to that then you're probably writing a good story in my opinion especially when you're dealing with a, an ip that you know there is there's a certain smell test that you have to to <laughs> pass in order for people to buy into whether this is what they want from you know a major franchise, so we're we're always kind of thinking of like as a, ostensibly a, a, a show that will bring in young audiences too. Like what would make you know I I have no shame in saying I would buy this toy when I was a kid, you know, for a vehicle or what have you. Um, and that, that's the in the industry in the, in the animation industry they call that uh, being toyetic, <laughs> which. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something you always have to kind of keep in the back of your mind. But no, like uh, I love conventions and, you know, my dream for a long time was to see characters that I helped put together or, you know, expand or even create as worthy of being cosplay. So whenever I see that happen on any, any of the shows I work on, but especially this one, it, it delights me to no end. I have a kind of topical question, and this is something that I'm maybe the only person obsessed with, but it's come up recently and it kind of relates to something you did in season one in the first 10, when you brought in all the classic characters using recordings. Mm-hmm. Now that the technology is evolving, could you imagine doing it with AI um, doing, you know, and just writing a script for Spock mm-hmm. and you can even put Spock in as, cause because of your timeline, Spock is still out there like, and not just Spock, but you could do all sorts of characters. Yeah, or do you I think mean, that's wrong in some kind of uh, way? It, I mean, the AI of it all, you know, from a purely like Star Trekian, cool new tech way, is interesting. But you know, I do think that that um, you know, from a purely philosophical standpoint, I don't know if it totally makes sense <laughs> from just sort of like a progressive utopia. Uh, for us to be focusing so hard on trying to get robots to replace the, the, the things we enjoy instead of the work that you know um, that we don't want to do, <laughs> does that make sense? Like, like should well, but I, in I this case, like, it would be uh, for someone who's passed away, for example, or someone who can't do it anymore. Like Star Wars, you know, James Earl Jones is happy for the Star Wars people to just have AI recreate his voice. Um, yeah, and I, I guess if it's if it's kosher with the actor, you know, then that's a different story. But I, I kind of have come back around to where, like, 
it's a strange place to be, I think, as an artist or as an actor, because I don't know, there's there's been so many times where a role has been recast and it's brilliant, you know, and that's and that's sort of even going back to the roots of acting, you know, of like who plays Othello, you know, who plays Lear on, you know, and and that sort of tradition, uh, you know, getting kind of. Uh, thrown out, I guess, just so that robots can recreate the the perfect verisimilitude. It doesn't. I don't know if it if it necessarily needs to be that way. You know, I think Ethan Peck is doing a phenomenal job. Uh, you know, as as Spock, putting his own spin on the character, but also, you know, it feels like Spock. It doesn't feel strange to me. So. I've kind of come around to I used to think like, you know, whatever what whatever the art requires, but you know, I think I think if if it comes down to not not utilizing the original performances but just generating new ones through an algorithm, I I don't know. I I think I my personal preference is I I'd, I'd like to see actors actually bringing something to the performance because there is something unique about versus the words on the page versus what they can infuse it with the subtext you know the 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 inflections that may not be there the ideas of inhabiting this character and they might bring something that you didn't think about it's the same reason why i prefer to work with a a writer's room um versus just being alone in a cave with my laptop working on my star trek manifesto <laughs> you know like there uh, inevitably that collaboration is going to bring something that I never even considered and f- for the better, you know, and it, the more you kind of whittle it down to just, you know, this kind of verisimilitude and you're at, you're kind of like shrinking your sandbox in a way of surprising new things. Cause I guarantee you there are things that Shatner and, and Nimoy and, uh, um, and Forrest Kelly brought to those characters that were not on the page. And if you just had a robot kind of, you know, reading those lines as written, I don't even know if Star Trek would still exist today because I think that they brought a certain gravitas to it and and surprising turns to how the how the, the it was made that um, that brought them to life. I don't know if computers will ever quite get there. Is is that a crazy answer or does that make no, that's sense? That's a great answer. It's a great answer. I I, I mean, I think on the technical side. You do. You can start with the real performance if you choose yeah. of a, of an actor and have it then be audio deep, the equivalent of video deep fake. There's an audio deep fake, but you would start with the real performance. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can just recast. I mean, the new video game Star Trek Resurgence has recast. There's a guy playing Spock, and he does a yeah. a great job. That's yeah. That's uh, Piotr Michaels, I should say. He's um, I've actually worked with him before. He's a phenomenal voiceover actor. I worked with him on Tales of Arcadia. He used to be on Mad TV. He's a master impressionist. And Star Trek Resurgence is a great example because, you know, even when I was listening to Piot's performance, I was there were little cracks and little tweaks. I was like, wow, he got that. That was that was in the Nimoy performance. And then he also was able to add a little bit of his own tweak to it. So, you know... I yeah I th- I think I I like working with humans <laughs> I guess is my answer. <laughs> that works. Yeah, glad to hear it. <laughs> Should we move into our 
Star Trek questionnaire? Yes. So do you have an episode or movie you think is very underrated in the Star Trek world? So I have a few things. I can just kind of mention them and maybe if one intrigues you, we can talk about it. Um, a, a couple of them are actually from Star Trek Voyager. Um, you know, so th- there's, I feel like season one of Star Trek Voyager, you know, it, a lot of people are, it took a little bit of time to find its footing, but, you know, after rewatching it a few times, obviously for Prodigy, I, I was like, oh, that was actually a really interesting episode. Um, one that I don't think many people talk about at all is an episode called Emanations, I think it was. Yes. Where, That's a great episode. Yeah, but I, I don't hear anybody really discuss it where it's like, how interesting that you have, you know, Janeway, who is sort of like this, you know, at the very least agnostic sort of science-minded person who is then confronted with this planet where they, they seem to have a gateway to the afterlife and, then, and you know, uh, and have a whole sort of society built around that and that and funereal customs and then she has to sort of question her own faith in science and is there a different way to acquire knowledge and it's just like it goes to some really deep surprising places (laughs) and then leaves it sort of open-ended in a way that's actually quite interesting to me so some other episodes i think are underrated you know another voyager episode i personally love is concerning flight I don't know if you guys, if you oh, yeah. remember that episode. Yep. Uh, it's so, it, it goes to such lengths uh, to just have Janeway and holographic Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci get on uh, a hang glider. Yeah. But it's so amazing and I love it because maybe it's just because I love John Reese Davies and, you know, I've worked with him before as well. And he's such a character and, you know, I, I will never not love holographic historical figures. It's so fun. And Da Vinci was, was so masterfully played by him. Ekaterina, you know, I love it. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny. Cause I just remember Jerry Taylor saying that she got a lot of flack for that. I, like for I, doing so much with him that women were mad at her or something. From, were they? I, yeah. Maybe I, maybe I just missed all of that controversy because I I, I didn't get it either, frankly. Like I thought he was a great character, and and it made sense that that was she would pick someone extraordinary. Yeah, and it's it, it just I think maybe I guess maybe there is some. Uh, it's a little strange to see a captain, you know. Uh, uh, taking on the role of as an, an apprentice, but you know, it's an apprentice to, to Da Vinci. Yeah. Like I, that's, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I just like, I just like Leonardo Da Vinci and I want I liked seeing them getting, <laughs> running up a hill and getting on, on a, a hang glider to fly away. That was, and him stealing the mobile emitter from the doctor was pretty amazing. <laughs> um, and then another episode that I feel like for whatever reason is very divisive and I didn't don't totally know why is 1159. Uh, I I think that that episode I think that's what it's called right yeah where, yeah um, the Millennium episode yeah the where the, they have the, the Millennium uh, Gate the yeah. Millennium Gate and I think what I liked about it is it felt like a departure from a standard Star Trek episode but in in a great way in so far as like it almost felt like remember that old Spielberg show Amazing Stories where you would have mm-hmm. these sort of slice of life things and then there'd be sort of a magical realist element kind of peppered into it. You know, how often do you get just like this really per- deep personal tale of someone sort of coming to terms with their future and then literally have that being reminisced about by your future ancestor, you know, 300 years from now? 
And I, I always thought that was kind of an interesting take that I, I don't totally get why people were maligning it other than they just felt like it was a filler episode or something. Um, but I, you know, I, I thought, I thought it was quite sweet just seeing like her fall in love with this little bookkeeper and help him understand that there's more to the future. And, you know, even the small things versus the big things can, can have great effect on people's trajectory and the trajectory of your ancestors. I also liked it because it, they showed, you know, Indiana, which where I'm from, like central Indiana. So it felt very real to me that, you know, because that, that, um, the bookstore is very much based on a bookstore that's in Bloomington, Indiana, where I, you know, grew up going to. Um, so the, I, I'll just name a couple other ones that we could move on. Uh, TNG, <laughs> <laughs> the chase, I think is a really fun episode and what a mystery, you know, like we found a, something encoded in the, in the shared DNA of, of all of alpha quadrant species. And there's actually like a message physically encoded in it. Uh, it's like an Indiana Jones movie uh, set in the 24th century. I mean, I always looked at that episode of like, why does everyone we meet just have stuff on their forehead? Right. And yeah. that's, that's the episode that kind of tries to explain that. Yeah. It's, it's a, pangalactic transpermia or whatever and actually saying like yeah we actually do all share uh, you know a guided evolution and that's why it was like oh that's awesome and then and i always kind of loved how at the end you know all these you know you had the was it the were the romulans and the klingons were the cadassians there too i can't remember but it was just like they were all there and then they thought some of them thought it was like a weapon and then they then they find out just this message from the progenitors and they're like oh let us never talk of this again. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's plenty of room there to see wh- where that goes. I think it, I love that episode. Um, Schisms, another great episode. I felt like that that was like nightmare inducing, like truly I scary. I love that one. Yeah. It's a uh, huge favorite of mine. Right. You know, it's it, obviously the paranoia over alien abductions it kind of reached a fever pitch in like the 80s and 90s. And, and you know, they're doing them doing their own take on that on a show where people encounter aliens all the time was really fascinating. Um, and then I, I'd be remiss if I don't bring up my favorite episode, Time's Arrow. I love it so much. <laughs> uh, you know, I know, I, I know some people... Uh, uh, have mixed feelings about uh, Mark Twain uh, in that, but he's my favorite. I love, he's just that sort of tin whistle <laughs> sort of, uh, and, and he, they bring him on the Enterprise. Come on, it's so good. Um, <laughs> you have such this encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek, and I know that you know, people in the writer's room vary. And if, if if something ever comes up, a riff on a given episode, but not everyone knows it, like, do you guys all like stop and watch it? Do you pitch the episode to everyone to say, okay, well, it's got Mark Twain in it. You know, <laughs> how, how does that work? You know? Yeah. Sometimes, usually just for expediency, one of us will just pitch what happens in the episode. But there have been occasions where we have um, paused and say, like over lunch, let's, we're like, you know, we're, we're talking about a certain aspect of Janeway's character. Or for instance, uh, we have the, the uh, Ensign, security officer who winds up saving Janeway or releasing her from prison. And, you know, as we were talking about doing that episode, I think we had discussed the episode before as being one of Kate Mulgrew's favorite episodes that she played. And then we wound up watching that episode over lunch and said, you know what? I think actually the the Bernari, 
you know, it could work because it, there's a great parallel to just like doing good recklessly without expecting it to come back to you. And then eventually, you know, it, it does in the most unexpected ways. Um, and so, yeah, we definitely would watch episodes over lunch. I remember when we first started, we, we watched a few episodes of the animated series just to kind of see <laughs> what, you know, get everybody up to speed of what had been done in animated before. And I like the second episode of that is, um, is uh, the episode where Spock's dog dies, and it's just like so brutal. <laughs> We're like, "Wow, we can do that. Sure, <laughs> let's do that, but with a hologram." <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely, we we loved watching uh, clips or epi- whole episodes over lunch if we could. And then I I've already spent too much time on this episode, but I love uh, other some DS Nine episodes I really love that I feel like people should talk more about uh, duet phenomenal episode i think it's like season one or two that people usually say oh it gets really good season three onward but i'm like duet i is like the first inkling of what you know that show was capable of i love vic fontaine Uh, another another thing where i feel like people were surprised i i was surprised that people had divided feelings on him i i think he seems like it he's just a hologram that wants to help people and run his nightclub you gotta love vic fontaine so i (laughs) you know I, I, are you of the I don't like Vic Fontaine camp? I'm not a huge fan. Okay. I, th- I felt like he was used too much. Fair enough. That they overdid it, basically. Yeah, that's fair. But, you know, I who who doesn't want to see people up on stage singing like old big band songs? It's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Little Green Men is just a delight. I love oh, yeah. that episode. Maybe that's not underrated. But th- that was my quote-unquote short list (laughs) (laughs) what is your most contrarian star trek opinion like the one i always give to people is that i thought chakotay and seven were a good couple how interesting (laughs) i guess this this is another one where like i just kind of felt this way and then i was surprised that other people didn't was i think genesis is actually a good episode of star trek um and here's why because i think uh, you know how often do you get to do a body horror episode, first of all, on Star Trek? I guess there's a few, but, you know, it's the, the fact that they worked it into like a ticking clock that everyone on the ship is going to turn into like animal mutants if you don't figure this out in time. And then also the explanation that it wasn't some alien virus coming in, but it was actually a retrovirus they accidentally created in the lab that was activating their junk DNA. And and then Picard has to figure it out with data before he turns into a lemur. Like that's cool stuff. I love it. It's we rewatched that as a group during the pandemic, the Trek movie team. Yeah. And and there are so many little things in that episode that that make it so great. Just the posture as the actors are imitating the animals that they're yeah. supposed to be. And that was, you know, Gates directed that one and she talked to us about it too. You're right. That's a great episode. It's one of those ones you were, you think was dopey when you remember it and then you watch it and go, no, it's terrific. I remember it scared the bejesus out of me as a kid, but well, then the I couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, there, there was the, um, uh, who is it? Barclay, Barclay was getting had like some weird spider, and then then there was like this great horror like Jaws moment where you're like, oh no, Worf has reverted to one of his Klingon ancestors, and he may have eaten an ensign, and it's like, holy crap! Like it's scary. <laughs> it's like the thing. Worf definitely ate a couple crew people. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's but it's I, I encourage fans that maybe had a, a lukewarm reception to it to rewatch it. I think it's actually done really well, and it, I believe it won an Emmy for like makeup bite, if I rem- recall. Yeah, it was definitely nominated. It was at least nominated. So the next question is, what is the nerdiest Star Trek thing you've ever done? The nerdiest Star Trek thing I've ever done. Hmm. I do own own Star Trek uniforms. <laughs> so that's I guess that's a line that, that is crossed. And then I definitely tried to bid too much money to try to win a destroyed bird of prey off of one of the prop site auctions that was used in TNG and and DS9. But then I was outbid like tenfold. So <laughs> I got it. It was an attempt to spend too much money that I should probably spend on my upcoming baby to, to, to instead <laughs> <laughs> own a, a. It wasn't even a complete bird of prey. It was like a broken one. It was like one they had blown up, so it would have just sat on my shelf like pieces of plastic that uh, Dan Curry had probably pieced together out of junk. So then <laughs> I'm like, yes, I need to own that. <laughs> And then the probably the weirdest or funniest or nerdiest item I own is uh, a Star Trek trading card for the Traveler. <laughs> <laughs> and I also have one for Livingston, Picard's pet fish. <laughs> nice. All right. Here's another one. What position would you have if you were serving on a starship? You know, I'd like to think that I would be in engineering you know, since I I found that some of my favorite characters are engineers, they sort of like surly, like, all right, well, I guess I got to just find a way to make this work kind of people. Sometimes in a writer's room, I feel like you're an engineer just trying to take the bits and parts of what you have and construct something incredible out of it. But in honesty, I'll, I would probably wind up in the lower decks, <laughs> you know, maybe science track or <laughs> Or apprenticing to the cook that showed up in the finale of Star Trek Picard. I feel like I could handle that. <laughs> Is there a particular ship you'd prefer to be on? Gosh, you know, um, I don't know. I, I kind of, I'd be happy to be on any of them, you know. I I probably wouldn't want to be on DS9 just because it was like a war zone. <laughs> maybe now, but maybe it's just a tourist destination now. But uh, I feel like... I, I would totally be on the the on Voyager. That seems like a pretty pretty chill one. Uh, after it came back from the Delta Quadrant, they probably would just be like, eh, you know, let's just go explore. Um, Enterprise was D, you know, would be fun because uh, they had all those like topiary gardens, and you know, they had people doing yoga. Seemed pretty. It's like a cruise ship. I'm curious on the, in the writers' room. You know, like you have a preference for engineering characters. You know, I know each script eventually gets assigned to one person, but are certain people looked to to write or punch up certain characters in the writer's room that they have a better feel for? Or is that just does everyone share? You, you know, it's it's actually pretty egalitarian. You know, we everybody gets like sort of like their their take or their their first pass on their script. And then it kind of goes to the the head writers and then they'll do a pass on it and then or, well they'll give notes and then they'll do their pass on it and then it'll come back to the writers room and all of us together will do a table read um and read the scripts together and after we'll read a scene uh, or we'll send it out for people to read it in advance and we'll read it together read a scene pause say did anybody have any thoughts any punch-up jokes anything that that bumped them or and whatnot and uh that that i found that's a 
a model that you know the Hagemans and myself and Chad Quant we brought over from Tales of Arcadia that we just kind of figured out ad hoc, and it seems to work pretty well. So that you know everybody kind of has a say, and then also the the writers themselves who are writing the script have a chance to weigh in at all stages of the process and make sure that you know everything sounds right, all the characters sound right. You know, there certainly are some people that are like they're better at writing dramatic scenes or there's some people that are like better at writing, you know, comedy. And so oftentimes they'll kind of gravitate towards that, that sort of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, it's very much a all hands on lower decks in there. <laughs> what is your biggest burning Star Trek question? I mean, we saw you tweet something recently about, you know, pips <sighs> and rank on Voyager with the McKee, but I don't know if that's your biggest winner. If you have something bigger that you just, never quite grasped i think my biggest burning question first of all like what's going on with the q continuum you know because i think last we saw they were ripping each other apart with a civil war that ostensibly was going to be solved with q's son but then we never really kind of got to see it again felt like we were just starting to get a chance to see what their world is like on Voyager. And then the closest we got was Q kind of showing up, but he was on kind of a personal journey. So I want to know what's going on with the Q continuum. I love the Q. I think they're amazing. They're Star Trek's own Mr. Mixie Pixlick, you know? (laughs) And then the other thing that that really I'm like, when are we going to come back to that is uh, what happened to the sword and clone of Kalos? You know, like I, th- I think he, the the clone of Kalis was sort of like offhandedly mentioned in like an episode or two of of Deep Space Nine. It's like, oh yeah, he's still kind of like the you know the uh, figurehead, but he has no power. <laughs> and, and then they the, the sword of Kalis, I think they just like what threw out an airlock or something. So ostensibly, it's just floating in space somewhere. Uh, I I love space archaeology. I guess I'm like part Picard that way. <laughs> You know, now that you know you are a creator of Star Trek canon, so you now have this opportunity to say, you know what, I would like to fill in this little hole, as it yeah. were. Is that something you guys talk about? Oh, sure. You know, I think the the real balancing act on Prodigy is like, how can we not have it feel what they say in the world of screenwriting is feeling sweaty. Where you're working really hard to to, to <laughs> just squeeze in. Uh, what about that sort of Kalis? You know, <laughs> like because um, especially on a show like Prodigy, you know, it, it is first and foremost these young people's journey, and so it, it needs to have some bearing on on their sort of uh, uh, trek through Starfleet um, and the greater story that you're telling for that season, um, but. That that isn't to say that Star Trek isn't masterful at finding ways to have little side quests and adventures, you know, while fighting the Dominion War or you know while dealing with the Romulans or whatever. Um, so you know, I think that um, I, I think that I certainly have like a master list. I have I have a notes document <laughs> that is like to, way too long at this point. That like whenever I whenever we have a blue sky period, I'll be like, here's some cool stuff I've been curious about that might apply to what we're talking about for this season. And then, you know, we collectively figure out what's interesting. And and sometimes it comes up organically too, where somebody might bring in a concept for an episode and then I'll be like, or, or, or someone in the room will be like, oh, that's just like, that sounds similar to this unanswered question from Star Trek. And maybe this is a chance for us to expand on that. So it's it's really fun, actually. 
they have all these toys in the sound sandbox that you can pick up that you know it's like finding an action figure that was that was buried in the sand from somebody who graduated 10 years ago <laughs> you know I'm dying to see that list that you have. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when it's not proprietary anymore. Right. <laughs> Are there any particular fan theories that, um, and this could be a prodigy fan theory mm-hmm. or, um, you know, just in general, any Star Trek fan theory that you are a, you know, you've always thought was fun. I mean, there are definitely prodigy fan theories that I thought were really fun, but I, I'll hold on to those because they may just be making it into the show. <laughs> um, but uh, I do have some favorite fan theories about Star Trek in general. Um, you know, my favorite is probably that Nick Locarno it was actually Tom <laughs> Paris, uh, <laughs> um, but he used a pseudonym in order to prevent, you know, a special treatment from his relationship to his dad, Admiral Paris. Uh, and didn't want to be treated differently. And I'm sure there's stuff that doesn't totally line up with that, but who knows? Maybe it was all a ruse, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then, of course, there is like the the finale of Star Trek Enterprise was a holodeck simulation that was manipulated by Section 31, and Trip actually survived and became a spy for Starfleet. I think there's even like a book that, that... says as much and i'm like you know that's not the worst way to retcon that because it was all a holodeck simulation you know um so interesting idea there um and then one more which is the craziest thing i've ever heard but i can't stop thinking about it which is that (laughs) talking about livingston the the fish he that he had a secret compartment uh, that that he could access through a series of water tubes that led into the cetacean ops section of the Enterprise D that we never <laughs> met, that we never saw, and he could hang out there with the dolphins and relay orders on behalf of Picard. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I so love was, that one. So he was like a super smart fish. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure they found some way to communicate with fish. You know, a couple hundred years from now, I. <laughs> But it's my favorite. And th- and that was like partially the explanation of why Livingston never appeared again after um, after um, Jellicoe ordered him to be gone. He just was reassigned to Cetacean Ops. What did you feel about the theory we put out there that is it's all zero it's all zero's fault bringing back the um, the Borg? You know, it's. I I think I've said this elsewhere. Like I don't want to just be like word of God, say yes that was it, or no that wasn't, because you know there's always that wiggle room for canon that who knows there there might be a great writer down the line that wants to expand on that. But I I I love the that there is a plausible possibility that you know that zero and and our crew was partially had partially set in motion you know some some of the events that rippled down to the what we saw of the remnants of the borg in picard seasons 1 and uh i guess 2 and 3 because that's sometimes that's that's my favorite part of star trek is when they can sort of dovetail these little little background stories together where there is a continuity there even if it's not explicitly stated so uh, uh the one thing I do take uh, uh, I do want to say is like I think saying it's all zero's fault does kind of <laughs> I, I think that that's a little bit of a misnomer because if the events of season one effectively prevented the destruction of the universe or the galaxy at the hands of the uh, machine gods so 
uh, I think that the, in a way, they're, the, if they were involved, it kind of helped unfold this, the process of season one to save the galaxy, if anything. <laughs> Fair enough. I just want to say there is evidence for your Nick Locarno theory. Is there? Because there is an episode where Admiral Paris has a photo of Tom on his desk, and mm. it's Nick Locarno. It's the photo from the TNG episode. There you have it. It's not. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> There's proof. So I I don't know if if you are a shipper, but mm. are there any two characters that you always wanted to see get together? Um. I'm not sure about like always wanted to see them get together, but I, you know, I think they're definitely, I I'm in the minority in that I think Worf's relationships were actually kind of sweet. You know, I don't, I, I wasn't like, I, I, I didn't hate Worf and Troy together. Uh, I also thought Worf and Jadzia had nice, I guess I just want Worf to find love really, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, maybe those should have been my answers to the controversial opinion. <laughs> Um, do you, have you had any Star Trek crushes? Uh, yeah, I'd say growing up, uh, that would be Kira Nerys from DS9. What can I say? You know, I, I, I had a crush on her. Where do you, where do you come down on the should Janeway and Chakotay have hooked up, uh, side? Because there's a Um, lot of shippers there. So many. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to... I personally try to say just agnostic to the, but then also just see what is actually there in the show. And I think, I, I, I think there, you know, there was chemistry between them. Like there's whole episodes where it's, you can at least see that Chakotay is carrying a torch for Janeway. And I don't think I'm, I'm overstating that. And there was an intimacy there. You know, as far as like how far you go with that, and that's really a question for what you see, you know, in the show, uh, in the shows now and in the future, and and you know that 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 kind of relationship certainly was very interesting, and I know they sort of dropped it at cert- at a certain point in Voyager, and I thought that was I, but if you watch Voyager beginning to end. The first three seasons, you know, they very much are kind of leaning towards there being a certain chemistry between them that I don't think it's outrageous to say that Chakotay certainly uh, had some some sort of feelings, even if it was unrequited for Janeway. But I, I don't know if 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 it was totally unrequited. I think it was more just like the the, the nature of their you know, chain of command prevented it from playing out. So it just remained a forever what if question that I think is tantalized, uh, um, you know, uh, the fandom of just like what, what, what could have been. And, you know, it is interesting and something we certainly don't ignore, I should say, uh, in Prodigy. So, you know, obviously, Chicote is coming back as a character and and the nature of that relationship we don't shy away from it shall we say all right so here's our our last one so what part of star trek canon do you find the hardest to swallow like just as an example like nobody uses money in the federation but we still have waiters <laughs> yeah, right um you know i think sometimes uh Maybe it's just seeing all the the difficulties that we face in today's society. Sometimes it can be hard 
to share Gene Roddenberry's belief that human nature can change on a fundamental level, you know, um, that greed will completely disappear in a post-scarcity society and such. You know, just maybe it's just because we do kind of live in an age where, you know, we have automated things that are that we're supposed to, you know, if you look at articles from like, you know, the 1920s that are like robots will be invented and we'll only have to work two days a week and then we can just have leisure time. And instead it was used to make it so that we're even more efficient and have to work five days a week even harder. And so so sometimes I think it can be a little hard to believe that that people won't take advantage of the system and everybody will just kind of be out out there for each other. But I also ha- choose to believe that it's possible if we collectively want it to be. You know, I I think there are things that that culturally, you know, we can kind of improve upon, and I I do believe that humans can fundamentally be better than their their forefathers. Um, and so, you know, I I think that that's that's something that it it can sometimes be hard to see the forest and the trees, but we also can't give up. You know, as far as the <laughs> humanity. Uh, at large, you know, choosing to be their better selves. I also have a hard time believing that food from a replicator would taste great. (laughs) 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 I think that uh, it does seem like, you know, like when you eat like a frozen dinner and very clearly the chicken nugget has been reformed into a chicken shape you know from from whatever meat paste was left over in the machine <laughs> it feels like that's what a replicator would be um but maybe that's just my 21st century thinking it's a reasonable assumption <laughs> yeah i think that's it maybe before we go i don't know if you have anything you want to say about prodigy if there's anything that I want to say about uh, Prodigy before we close out, I mean, I guess uh, Nickelodeon is going to start airing episodes 11 through 20 here in America. So if you don't have Paramount Plus, that might be a chance for you and your young cadets to f- catch up on the rest of season one. Um, and that, that'll be happening sometime soon to you know keep your eyes peeled for that. And then uh, season two is coming this winter. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned. It's going to be a really fun adventure. And I would say it's probably the most, uh, even more ambitious, uh, in its storytelling scope than season one is, uh, and it goes to some far out places and then really brings it home. So I, I hope everybody, uh, tunes in, uh, the very, some, some very surprising places that it goes, uh, and, uh, can't wait to share it with you all. Well, we couldn't be happier to have you. You're one of our favorite guests. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Take care, gang. Nice talking with you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, that was pretty amazing that he spent so much time with us. And as he, he said, I could just talk Trek forever. And so could we. So we could have had we all had time. We probably could have gone on for another hour. He came prepared. You know, we told him what we were planning on doing this kind of questionnaire thing, which is an experiment. So hopefully readers, you could come to the site and let us know. Did you like that? Should we do that again with anyone else? I'm not sure anyone else would endure that. Terry probably would. Mike McMahon would too. Yeah. You know, Tawny Newsom would. I was would. just going to say Tawny would. There are a whole bunch that definitely would. And then yeah. some that would just be sort of lost, but it was fun to do. It's something I saw Neil Shirley had done in his newsletter and I really, enjoyed it. So it seemed like a good way to go. 
But let's wrap things up since, boy, have we all been talking for a long time. Uh, Let's wrap things up with our bits of the week. Tony. I just want to point to an upcoming book written by my friend, Jeff Bond, who's a contributor to the site. He's written a bunch of books and his latest book he's got coming up is called The Jerry Goldsmith Companion. It's this huge two volume set. You can pre-order it on Kickstarter. We did an exclusive excerpt uh, this week. And if you are a fan of Star Trek music or film music, you know, he is one of the greatest film composers of all time. And Jeff's the guy to chronicle his life and his work. So, yeah, Jeff's definitely the expert on this. So that's the right guy to do it. What is your bit of the week? Mine is just so goofy. But, you know, Todd Stashwick has this cool sort of game den in his house. And so he decided to invite some friends over to play D&D. And they've posted a lot of pictures. So it was Jerry Ryan, Mika Barton, Terry Metalis, uh, two of the writers, Matt Okamura and Christopher Monfett from Picard, and Sylvina Knight, Sylvina Knight, a makeup artist. And they're all playing D&D in Todd's game room. And they look like they're having so much fun. There are pictures. There's video. Jerry Ryan's facial expressions are awesome as she's trying to figure out what the hell she's gotten herself into. So, I mean, we'll put up links to their feeds, but it's basically just go. It's not even a specific tweet. It's multiple shots and videos that are just a whole lot of fun to look at. What's funny is I used to play TD when I was a little kid and I haven't for decades, but maybe I should do it again. You know, it's, it's cool again, right? Well, I don't know if it's cool again, but I, my 19 year old played for many, many years. And in fact, when he was about 14, we went and interviewed Connor Trenier and I had not to the interview and Connor Trenier was trying to figure out what was nerdier D and D or Star Trek. And Connor decided D and D was much nerdier. <laughs> then the nerdiest thing is the, Star Trek role-playing game because there is a Star Trek version. It's not Dungeons Dragons, but it's essentially Dungeons Dragons with Star Trek. So that, that's that the ultimate. Be, yeah. Feels like something we should all do in Vegas. <laughs> we should consider it. You'd have yeah. to read like there's books. You have to like, there's a lot oh. of rules. These yeah. are complicated games. It's not like Monopoly. You know? Yeah. That's not as fun. <laughs> anyway, on, <laughs> that, on that nerdy note, that's it for this week. See ya. <laughs>